If you have your Bible, if you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians in the back of the Bible, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia at the time. We're in the midst of a sermon series making our way through this really incredible letter that reminds us that there is one gospel. And the gospel is a Greek word that means good news. It's the good news of what God has done for us. This one gospel that takes sinners like you and me and transforms us by the power of God because of the work of God that sinners can become sons and daughters. Let that settle in. That because of the good news of what God has done for us, that we We can be called the children of God. And in Christ Jesus, that is who we are. We see this children of God. It's like the the apex of faith in Christianity. I mean, of all things, it's this reality, this loving father that would call us his own. And the book of Galatians is dealing with a fight over who has the right to be called the children of God. Who has that right? There was some disagreement of what really makes you a child of God? What makes you, uh, what they would say is uh, connected to this guy named Abraham and all the promises that were offered to him? Who, what makes you uh, access to all these blessings of God? And the question will be, are you a legitimate child of God or not? Who has that right? Who are the legitimate children? Who are the illegitimate children? And what legally makes that so? When it comes to legitimizing children right now, it's a different day and age than it used to be, right? Now there's DNA testing. You want to know who the dad is? You want to know who that reality is? Well, there's a DNA test that will allow you to know without a shadow of a doubt who the father and who the father is or who the father isn't. But what is that biblical DNA? Biblically speaking, how do we know? What's the proof that allows us to know for sure if we are children of God or what scripture might say, illegitimate children of God, those who think they are, but they're not. Let's talk a little bit about the way society has viewed illegitimate children. Traditionally under common law, we've, we've lived in a society where illegitimate children are not a legal child of either of their parents. Interesting in a society that looked at and valued family relationship and considered family to be established only by marriage. And again, this isn't just biblical context. This is me getting this off the internet. And this is reality of, of how society has thought about illegitimate children. And it said this, that an illegitimate child had no right to parental support and no right to inherit through either parent. That was how it was. Effectively, he or she was on their own. Does that sound sound pathetic? Seriously, they're on their own? But by the 20th century, although many states have given illegitimate children the right to inherit through one or both of their families or their parents, some states said, no, they're not gonna give that right to illegitimate children. And then it was in 1968, the case of Levi versus Louisiana, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that state laws cannot... uh, Um, deny illegitimate children rights based on their illegitimacy, that they got to have rights. And even more so in 1977, the case of Trimble versus Gordon, the Supreme Court struck down a state law provision that denied that illegitimate children don't have the right to inherit their father's property. But the father, they must prove that he's the father. Interesting. 
So at that point before that, before that 1977 case, an illegitimate child had the right to his mother's inheritance, but he had nothing of his father's. And so eventually Allah was saying, no, no, no. Even if there's not a marriage involved, we got to take care of these kids and they have a right to the father's inheritance also. A state can't determine who gets it and who doesn't. But so the question is with us more biblically, who has the right to be called truly the sons of God? Who has the right to that relationship? Because in that relationship come all of God's blessings. In that relationship come all of God's promises. This is really, really important. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we're going to see the fight that is happening in the book that we're studying right now. Who has that right to be called the children of God? Who has the rights of the promises of God? And they were offered to a man of God a long, long time ago named Abraham. It's probably important that I tell you a little bit about Abraham. Abraham was a guy who lived a long time ago. We find him in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible in chapter 12. His life story is going to go through chapter 25. And God did something absolutely amazing to Abraham. He came to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want to be your God and you're going to be my people. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nation. Through your seeds, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to love you and never stop loving you. As a matter of fact, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants more than all the stars in the sky. Pretty amazing promise, wasn't it? It's even more amazing if you realize who Abraham was at the time of this promise. Abraham's like 90. His wife's like 80. I mean, they were well past having children. And God just shows up and says, by the way, your family's going to so be so big, you're not going to be able to name them uh, the stars. They're going to be more than the stars. They say, that's crazy. But Abraham believed God's promise. He believed in God. He said, God, it's true. Your word is true. And scripture says something marvelous that it was credited to Abraham as righteousness because of his belief in God's promise. That the promises of God come when we believe them. It's incredible that that has access to God. And so who now has access to that father Abraham and all these blessings? Well, for some, it says it's, it's being Jewish. I mean, this is Abraham, and he, he became Jewish. I mean, he had to be circumcised. So to really be a part of God's family, it's about a religion, and it's about a Judaism. But Christianity comes along and says, no, no, it's not about some religion or some religious exercise like circumcision or baptism. To really be connected to God, to be called a child of God, being a Christian is having faith that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, God promised Abraham that from him a seed, not plural, but a singular seed would come and make all things right and make all things new. That all things will be blessed because of the seed. And we see that scripture unfolds. It's amazing that this seed is Jesus. And see that all the promises of God are fulfilled to those who believe in God's promised seed to come in Jesus. And so basically there'll be those on one side who says, well, we're children of God by living according to God's law. God gave the law to Moses and if how you act and how you obey, well, that will determine if you're God's child or not. But those who believe in the gospel, that's what's clear in the Bible, aren't trying to live according to the law. They're trying to live according to the promise. All that God, listen, all that God requires of us, God provides for us. All that God requires of us being holy God, he's provided for us through his son. And incredibly that through his life, through, through his death, that we should die through his resurrection, 
the promises come flowing to us and that we now can be called the children of God. But what Paul is going to do in this very interesting passage, because they're really asking is, who has the right to call this Abraham guy father? Who has the right to be called the children of God? And Paul's going to use an allegory. He's going to use an allegory. He's basically saying, okay, you guys are trying to figure out who's your father. You want to know who your father is? Who's your mother? You got to look at whose is your mother? Who are you looking to, to give you life and hope? And he's basically going to say this is the DNA proof. Is it in your mother? Is it the law of God? Or is the DNA proof in the promises of God in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And this passage, this difficult, challenging passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the heart appeal of a pastor. This is going to be Paul's most pastoral moment in this entire letter, this entire book of the Bible. Finally, Paul is going to kind of emerge, emerge from being harsh and, and kind of domineering to being very pastoral and motherly. The second thing we're going to see is the allegorical appeal to who is your mother. You want to know who you are with God's eyes? Let's look to who your mother really is. And then we're going to see, thirdly, this harsh treatment of illegitimate children. And there's a sense where the Bible is going to tell us that there should be harsh treatment if it's an illegitimate child in this allegory of a story. Now, you should be thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's let God unpack it for us. Here's the reality. We're going to be in Galatians 4, and we're going to start in verse 12. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. And let me just tell you right now, this is the hardest part of the book. Paul is going to talk about an allegory. He's going to, he's going to tell us truth so, through an allegory of the Bible. And he's going to talk about free women and slave women. He's going to talk about covenants. And there is tons of opportunity for you to check out and for all of us to get lost. And of all the texts that I've preached through this one, this is, this is the one that it's like, oh, Lord Jesus, please come and speak because I don't want to bore them and I don't want to confuse them because the truth is we're talking about who can be considered a child of God and who can't. So this is really important. And there's a sense where for us to get this, we got to know a little bit about the story. So I'm going to tell you as we preach this a little bit about who Sarah and Hagar and all this is, these covenants are. But the bottom line you got to know is what's being discussed here is who has the right to be called a child of God? At the end of the day, each one of you needs to leave here knowing for sure what is the DNA test that makes sure that I know what God requires that I could call him my father. So let's look at Galatians 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. In verse 12, we're going to read through 31. You got to put your seatbelt down. You're going to have to lean in. All right. I mean, this is a, this is some tough sledding this morning, but it's beautiful because it's God's word. It's, it's an errant, inerrant word. And he doesn't just want to uh, entertain you. He truly wants to transform you and call you his beloved child because of the work of his son. So let's lean into God's word. I'm going to pick up in verse 12 and read through the rest of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? 
For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. These, the they there are these Judaizers that are telling them that to be right with God, you need Jesus and, the, and you need to be circumcised. You need the law of God. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, that's where the law came from, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, this is Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit what the son of the free woman. So brethren, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you love us enough that you would give us your son, you would give us your spirit, you would give us your word. Father, each week I stand before this blessed congregation and ask that you would do that which only you could do, that you would speak through a broken sinner like me. Oh, Father God, that's my urgent plea this morning. For this text is confusing on the surface and it's talking about a woman of a slave and a woman that's free and these covenants and and life and death and children that are legitimate and children are illegitimate. So God, would you come? Would you bring clarity to your word? Father, I always pray that the things that are wrong or just my opinion, that those things would fall away and be forgotten quickly. But man, this week for sure, God, May that be a reality. But the things that are said that are true and and contain the good news of the gospel, that power of God that that does make us your children, your beloved children, would you use those things to shape our lives? Oh God, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us minds to understand your word. God, give us hearts that would embrace your truth. And God, give us feet to walk in a manner worthy of your name. As Paul says in this, may we be formed in Christ. May we be more like your son. Would you call us your beloved sons? Because you've given us the grace to believe the promises that you've given to us. 
Father, we pray that you and you alone receive glory and we receive great challenge. And we pray this in Jesus's matchless name. Amen. If you want to follow along with me, there is an outline for you in your bulletin, some opportunity to make notes as we try to dissect this difficult passage. An interesting passage, wasn't it? Reading through it, it just scratched your head one or two times thinking, all right, what do you have for me here, Lord? Well, the first part of this is the real heart appeal of a pastor. Now, if you've been around this sermon series, if you've studied through the book of Galatians, you'll know that of all the writings of Paul, this is the harshest writing. Paul doesn't, you know, deal gently with the church in Galatia. He really kind of comes at them immediately out of the box and wants to say, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? What are you doing? But in the middle of this letter, he kind of goes back to that heart of an apostle, that heart of a pastor. And you're going to hear that heart appeal, the heart of appeal of a pastor. In this passage, we see Paul's heart. And it's interesting. It's the first time he's called them brethren. Read anything else of Paul, and immediately you'll start off with brothers. It usually starts off very lovingly. It's really almost halfway, three-quarters of the way through this, where he'll call them brothers. But he tells them even more. He calls them little children. And he refers to himself in motherly terms. It's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm in childbirth for you. You know, he's the one who was the missionary pastor that went and told him the good news. He was the one who went, and apparently there was some kind of ailment he had. We don't know what it was. There was some sickness that they had to deal with. Uh, I often think about Paul's thorn in the flesh, and this is just my opinion, and I don't know if it's true. That might be something about his eyesight. Remember when he came in contact with Jesus uh, that he was blinded at first, and then something like scales fell off his eyes? And even sometimes he talks like he writes in big handwriting because maybe his eyesight was bad. He's going to use a phrase saying, man, we had this relationship that I loved you and you loved me. We're growing in Christ. And it was so dear that you, you would gouge out your eyes for me. Now, some commentator writer said, well, it was a term used back then saying, I love you so much. I'll gouge my eyes out for you. Could they come up with a better one than that one? But to me, maybe it's because of Paul's eyes. I don't know. But Paul's there because of an ailment or a sickness and he's preaching the gospel and they're receiving him warmly, his message warmly. And all of a sudden they turn on Paul. Some false teachers come. They say, Paul's not the real deal. He's not telling you the whole story. And now all of a sudden the one that guiles your eyes out for is become their enemies. But Paul's using an interesting thing. He says to the church, he says this, I want you to become as I am because I've become like you are. And what is he saying there? He goes, I want you to become like me. I want you to be free. I want you to be free in Christ Jesus. Paul was an incredible religious man. He studied God's law. They called him a Pharisee. And according to God's law, it says he was kind of blameless because of that. But Paul came to Christ and he realized that through Christ Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that all of his sins were paid for. That Paul's identity now is in Christ. He now has life in Christ. That he's completely free to God's law. And he's completely God's child. He says, I want you to become like me. I don't want you to put yourself under the law. I don't want you to try to earn something yourself. Be free in Christ Jesus. But he also says this, I want you to become like Christ. I want Christ to be formed in you. That's really what a pastor should do. Paul says that uh, he doesn't use flattery with the church. He says that there's some who come in there and they'll, they'll puff you up. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. And I got to tell you, that's the greatest temptation as a preacher, especially people pleasers like me. 
You have a congregation, you want to like you, right? You want to tell them what they want to hear so that they like keep, keep you around and say, Yahoo, Jeff. But Paul will say, no, no, it's not important you say, Yahoo, Paul. What's really important is that you say and know, Yahoo, Jesus. Because Jesus is the one. So Paul is saying, you know, when I preach, become like me and really become like, like Jesus. And I'm not going to use flattery. I want to speak truth to you in love. Because that reality became his enemy. Some of you are visiting. Some of you have been around here a long time. But wherever you go, when it comes to pastoral care, you know that it's legitimate if they speak truth in love. And if they really, their goal is that you will love Jesus. So what's a pastor's role? It's that. Speak truth and love. And what is that? It's called the gospel. Paul will say, I know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. He begins with that reality in this book that Christ came to die for sins. He's going to end with that reality. And he's going to give them Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. And that's what we should do as, as, as pastors and leaders. Speak truth and love. And a pastor's goal is to become Christ-like. The goal isn't that we grow this place. I mean, I'd love that to happen. The goal isn't that our name of Orangewood is more famous. The goal isn't uh, my fame or yours. The goal is that together we will become iron like sharpens iron. Together we will grow and this congregation will reflect more of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying in a pastoral heart to these folks. But he just gives them an, an uh, allegorical appeal of mother. Again, it's interesting um, I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said uh, he's a British uh, Baptist preacher that lived in the 18th century, the 19th century, the 1800s. And he said about this passage, he said, really using allegory is a dangerous thing. And because you start telling the story, it didn't go sideways, but Paul tells it well. And he's going to use this story, this allegorical appeal of who is your mother? Basically, he's asking this question. Who has the right of calling Abraham father? Who has the right of the promises of God given to Abraham and his descendants? We heard that in the text. Who gets the promised inheritance? And Paul is going to say, the ones who are getting it are going to get it are the ones who believe. They believe in the promises of God. They believe in the promised seed that was come. And the promised seed that was promised to Abraham is Jesus. And that we, because of what Jesus has done, we can not only have a relationship uh, with, with Abraham, we can call him our father. More importantly, because of the reality of Christ Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit, that sinners like us can call the God of the universe, Abba, Father. Not only do we have the right of calling Abraham as, as in his descendants, but we have the right and the privilege of calling God, Abba, Father. Well, these Judaizers were saying that, no, you can't just believe in Jesus. You also have to be following the law of Moses. You also have to be circumcised. So the allegory appeal was, well, who is your mother? Who is it? Are you looking to the law? Are you appealing to the law as your mother? Are you appealing to the gospel of grace? And he's going to use the stories and say, okay, now here's the deal. Abraham had two sons. He had a son of promise named Isaac, and he had a son of flesh named Ishmael, a son of a slave woman named Hagar, and a son of his wife, a free woman named Sarah. And he says, the son of the slave is according to the flesh, and the son of the promise is according to that promise. Now, let me, let me give you a little bit of background, because especially if you haven't been around the Bible, this is going to say, what in the world is going on here? Let's go back to the book of Genesis, that God would come 
to Abraham. And as I mentioned earlier, he would promise that through him, all the nations would be blessed. And he would promise that a seed would come that would be a blessing to all nations. And he promised Abraham that he would have more descendants than the stars of the sky. Abraham believed it. And Abraham was probably about 90 at the time of the promise. And his wife was about 80. (laughs) Not a good time to start planning a family. And about 10 years would go by and there would be nothing that happens. And so what happens when you believe in God's promises and 10 years go by and nothing happens? You start scheming. You start saying, well, this can't be the plan. So I will do it on my own. So what they did is they thought, well, obviously God promised children. Listen, our day's way gone. So let's take the servant girl, Hagar, here. And why don't you, uh, Abraham, go with uh, Hagar and maybe we'll produce a family through her. That was the child according to the flesh. That was the child of their plan. God never said, take Hagar. God never said, this is the way I'm going to do it. God, you know, God didn't say that. God said, through you, Sarah, you're going to have kids. But they thought, let's do it on our own. And so they had a child on their own, according to the flesh. And lo and behold, they would later have a child according to the promise. And his name would be laughter. His name would be with Isaac. And this is an allegory that, that Paul is telling us. He's saying, well, the allegory of these two children is like two covenants. They represent Mount Sinai, the law, that is Ishmael or, or uh, Hagar's son, and the covenant of grace, which is received in Christ Jesus. So you have two women, two covenants. Now, another, let me just tell you what a covenant is. A covenant is a solemn agreement between God and man by which he makes us his people and we are uh, to be, he is to be our God. And so he enters into this relationship with us. In the Old Testament, this came through Moses and the law. It's called the covenant of the law. Uh, in the New Testament, we see it promised in the old is this covenant of grace of what God will do to us. Two sons equal two types of trying to live under the, uh, uh, those covenants. Isaac was under the covenant of grace that we live by God's grace through faith and Ishmael under the covenant of works. So what's going on here? Well, Paul is using this to ask, who are you looking to, to really be your mother? Who gets you access to Abraham and more importantly, to God? What makes you a child of a God? Here's, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. Is what I do to follow the law make me a child of God? Or is it what I believe by trusting what God provides that I become a child of God. That's the distinction. Are you trying to earn God's favor? Be a good moral person, be religious, do enough good things. And if you follow this law, then God will accept you as a son. What the law says itself is, if you break any of it, you're cursed. And all of us are sinners. Or are you trying to be a son because of the promises of God that he would provide for you what he requires of you? And that is his son, Jesus. That's a savior to come and live the life you and I failed to live. To die the death that we deserve to die. To be resurrected so our enemies are defeated. And incredibly, what the gospel says is that we are made his children. We are descendants of Abraham. Because Abraham believed the outlandish promises of God. And it was credited to him as righteous. Then that's the same access we have to God too. We believe in this incredible promised seed named Jesus that would come for us. That our mother, we don't look to the law as our mother. We look to God's grace and the covenant of grace. That is the one that has hooked us 
to God's relationship. How is it with you? Are you looking to the law to justify who you are? Are you looking to your own um, righteous acts? Are you trying to be good enough so that God's favor will rest upon you? So this is what was happening and, and the, uh, what Paul was dealing with. They were coming to Christ. That's great. Then all of a sudden, these guys come along and says, okay, you got Jesus. Now start working really hard. If you really want to get it, go do these religious things like circumcision. Put yourself under the law. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. No, that's just illegitimacy. That just represents Hagar. That's, that's, will never set you free. The only way you'll ever be set free, the only way you'll ever know God, the only way you'll ever receive blessing by God is by his grace. It's amazing. It's by his grace and mercy. Because he's merciful to sinners. It's not our efforts. It's his. And Christianity and this incredible relationship is all wrapped around the rea- reality is you're in because you accepted the promises of God. Not because you do the work of the law of God. And I know for many of us that we've had this drilled in our heads over the years and we've embraced this and this is beautiful. But in our flesh, we keep going back and acting like we're, we're children of, of a slave woman. That law. We want that law to be our mother again. And he's saying, that's crazy. You're set free and you're your mind. So, so the first thing we see is Paul's pastoral heart, his appeal of a pastor. The second thing is this allegorical appeal to who's your mother. Is it the law or is it the gospel? And the last thing we're going to see is this harsh treatment of illegitimate children. If you read through Abraham's account, you read through it, and it starts in Genesis 12, and it goes through like Genesis 24, 5, maybe, no, it's later than that, maybe 27 or 8, don't know. But if you read through his account, the story of Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac is a story of harsh treatment. It's kind of heartbreaking, to be honest with you. It's one of those things that make you kind of your stomach turn. Why? Because Sarah has a good idea, let's have Hagar have children, so we have descendants, that becomes a reality. All of a sudden, Hagar's the woman who has children and she doesn't. She's barren. She's a jealous. She doesn't like it. Hagar starts treating this free woman poorly. And so what does Sarah do? do? Drags, pushes her out. God says, go back. When Isaac is finally born and he's a little baby, Ishmael, the older brother, probably a teenager, starts making fun of Isaac. They don't like that. So what happens? Take that slave boy, and her woman, and drive her out. I got to tell you, it's one of the passages in scripture that's really hard for me. I sit there and think, God, how can this be right? How can you tell this woman and her son? I mean, this, this, this son came from Abraham. How, how do you do it? And I got to tell you, there's a lot about this passage I don't like. It just doesn't seem right. But I think what we have to see that's most important is this. By the way, God's more gracious and merciful than I ever will be. And I don't understand all that's happening here. But listen, God won't share his name with those who don't believe in his promise. He won't do it. And God won't share his inheritance and blessings on those uh, who don't believe in the promises to Abraham. Those who are trying to be religious, those who who aren't living by faith, but are living um, by their own works, God's not going to share a thing with them. According to scripture, only those who have the gospel of grace as their mother will receive the blessings. But this is telling us more. He's using this analogy saying, 
Here are you embracing Christ alone. You're being harassed by those who want the law. And the law will always harass us. I think that we live in a time where what happens in Texas, God forbid, right? I mean, oh, wasn't that awful? How heartbreaking. I want you to know that we've, we've worked on plans here long before this. But, you know, what, what do we do? And it's scary. Uh, but let me know. I mean, somebody says, I sit in certain places now. and We, we know uh, who's here that can protect us. But we know the one who ultimately protects us. But here's the point of this is expected to be, if, you're, if you are crazy enough to believe in the promises of God, if you think that you're standing before God is all by his grace through the work of his son, expect to be harassed by those who don't. Those who think their religion is what they do to earn their way to God, whether they take trips to certain cities, whether they do religious things, they will think that your religion is phony, that you are just, what do you mean is not what you do? So we're going to be harassed because we are people of the book and people who believe that God's promises are real and that our whole identity is in Christ Jesus alone. And we receive it all by grace, all through faith and not of our works. But he also says this, we are to deal harshly, drive them out. Those who, those who are trying to find their identity to the law, drive it out. And here's what it's saying to all of you who are striving to justify your existence because of what you do. Drive the law away from you. If you're trying to find your identity and fulfilling some requirement, you've missed it. Your identity has to come in Christ alone. The Passion uh, concert was at Northland a couple weeks ago when Louis Giglio spoke and my son Caleb and uh, Hetty, his girlfriend, went and they told me, Uh, that one of the phrases that he used was identity before activity. Identity before activity. I thought it was so good. I've used it about a hundred times since and I don't usually give him any credit, but they're here this morning. I better give him a little credit. But the reality is, is in Christianity, in the gospel, it's your identity is found in Christ Jesus alone. And that moves toward your activity. If If your activity is trying to secure your identity, you've missed it. I know you, you're a lot like me. And you love this gospel thing, but you have a tendency to run back to the law to try to justify your existence. And the gospel says you can only run back to the law when you know that you're free and you know you're loved and then use it as a light to help you live for his glory. Does that make sense? If you're going to use it to try to justify who you are and you're standing before God, drive it the heck away. The law, I love what Spurgeon said about this. The law of God is like a sheepdog. And all it's supposed to do is drive you to the shepherd. The law is supposed to bark at you. It's supposed to nip at you. It's supposed to chase you around until you fall at your feet of your shepherd, Jesus, and say, rescue me, carry me. Deal harshly with the law when you try to find it as your identity. But in Christ Jesus, it may be your guide to live for his glory. So the question is, who's your father? Who's your father? Is it Abraham? Who's your father? Is it God the father? The only way that that's a reality is through Christ Jesus. It's not because of religion. It's not because you're circumcised or baptized or joined a church or had a certain sacrament. You are by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And the question you probably have to ask to really get that nailed down is who's your mother? Are you looking to the law of God or your own morality? Or are you looking to the promises of God and what Christ has done for us?
And the reality, if you are in Christ Jesus, you're free. You're free because of his performance. And if you're trying to earn something on your own, you will forever be enslaved. You'll never be good enough. You'll never do enough. You'll never get right enough, moral enough. If you're just trying to earn it, it will haunt you to the day you die. And Paul is saying, I want you to be like me. A broken sinner. Paul will say of himself, I'm the chief of sinners. But I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm in. Oh, no, no. Not because I'm a Pharisee. Not because I've studied the law. Not because of all the things I've done. Those are, those are nothing. But by the grace of God. You see, in God's court, there's no DNA except for the DNA of God's blood his son shed for us that has covered us and washed away our sins. He robes us in his righteousness. Are you in Christ Jesus? If so, you're forgiven and free. You're legit. If not, you're illegitimate. And according to scripture, have no right to the promises of God. Embrace Christ, my brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Now, Father God, thank you for Paul's tenacity of just continually beating this drum that our freedom comes from Christ alone. Thank you for his pastoral heart that tells us that he wants us to be like he is, forgiven and free in the gospel. And God, forgive us for all the things we've run to that, that we think that if we do this or if we do, do that, then they will be free. If we could just be good enough. And it's never going to be the case. We'll always be enslaved. Oh, Father God, for recovering moralists like me, for recovering people pleaser like me, would you come, would you meet us? And would you remind us the truth of the gospel? Would you forgive us from running from Jesus and trying to add to this gospel more doing of our own that would make us whole? We can only be formed in Christ by your grace through the work of the gospel. And God, make that a reality in my life, in this church's life. For your glory, we pray. Amen.